0: Now you talk about terror.
1: What about for me? I've been terrorized all my day. Hamma all my day.
0: The Israeli army, known as the Israel Defense Force or IDF, is integral to understanding Israeli society. Nearly all Israelis do three years of military service. Most continue to serve in the reserves until middle age. Its generals often retire to occupy senior positions in government and industry. The dominance of the military in Israeli society helps explain why war, militaristic nationalism, and violence are so deeply embedded in Zionist ideology. Israel is the outgrowth of a militarized, settler-colonial movement that seeks its legitimacy in biblical myth. It has always sought to solve nearly every conflict—the ethnic cleansing and massacres against Palestinians known as the Nakba or catastrophe in the years between 1947 and 1949, the Suez War of 1956 the 1967, and 1973 wars with Arab neighbors, the two invasions of Lebanon, the Palestinian intifadas, and the series of military strikes on Gaza, including the most recent, with violence. The long campaign to occupy Palestinian land and ethnically cleanse Palestinians is rooted in the Zionist paramilitaries that formed the Israeli state and continues within the IDF. The overriding goal of settler colonialism is the total conquest of Palestinian land. The few Israeli leaders who have sought to rein in the military, such as Israeli Prime Minister Levi Eshkol, have been pushed aside by the generals. The military setbacks suffered by Israel in the 1973 war with Egypt and Syria and during Israel's invasions of Lebanon only fuel the extreme nationalists who have abandoned all pretense of a liberal democracy. They speak in the open language of apartheid and genocide. These extremists were behind the 1995 assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Israel's failure to live up to the Oslo Accords. This extremism has now been exacerbated by the attack of October 7th, which killed about 1,200 Israelis. The few Israelis who oppose this militaristic nationalism, especially after October 7th, have been silenced and persecuted in Israel. Genocidal violence is almost exclusively the language Israeli leaders and now Israeli citizens use to speak to the Palestinians and the Arab world. Joining me to discuss the role of the military in Israeli society is Miko Pellet. Miko's father was a general in the Israeli army. Miko was a member of Israel's special forces, although disillusioned with the military, moved from his role as a combatant to that of a medic. After the 1982 war in Lebanon, he buried his service pin. He is the author of The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land, Foundation Five. Let's talk about you grew up, you were a child, your father was a general in the IDF. Uh, This uh, kind of inculcation of that military ethos has begun very young and begun in the schools.
1: Can you talk about that? Sure. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's good, uh, good to be with you again and talk to you. So it, it, begins, it begins really before the military. It begins in, 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 in preschool. It begins as, as soon as kids are, are able to talk and walk.
0: I mean, I would say I
1: knew the, the order of the ranks in the military before I knew my alphabet. And I think this is true for many many israeli kids i mean the uh the israeli education system is such that it leads young israelis to become soldiers and to serve the apartheid state and to serve in the genocidal uh in this in, in this genocidal you know state which is the state of israel and so it's it's an enormous part of that and with me it came with of course you know mega doses of that because when your fathers a general it's particularly of that generation that generation of the 1967 generals they're like gods of the Olympus. I mean, you know, everybody knew their names. On Independence Day, I remember, like in the schools, you would have little flags. So not just Israel flags of Israel, but flags of the IDF with pictures of IDF generals, with pictures of you know military, uh, all kinds of military symbols and so on. So I mean, it's 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 everywhere. It's it's and um, and of course, when I was a kid, they still had a military parade. So I mean, it's it's everywhere, and it's inescapable, and it's in the it's like you said, it's you hear it when you walk down the street, you hear it in the news, you hear it in conversations, you hear it in schools, you read it in the textbooks, and there's really no place to develop dissent. There's no place to develop a sense that dissent is okay, that dissent is possible. In the few cases where people do become dissenters, it's either because their families have some kind of a tradition of. Being communist or you know you know more progressive, and somehow it's part of the their tradition. But you know this is a minority of a minority. By and large, Israel stands um, stands with the army, and Israel is the army. You can't really separate Israel from from its army from its military.
0: Let's juxtapose the myth that you were taught in school about the IDF with the reality. So.
1: The the story is the myth that I was and again this was this was um, this was given me even in larger doses at home because my father and his comrades were all part of of the 1948 mythology. Um, You know we were small and we were resourceful and we were clever and therefore in 1948 we were able to defeat these these Arab armies and these Arab killers who came to try to kill us and so on and destroy our fledgling little Jewish state. And because of our heroism and because, and you talked about the biblical connection, because we are the descendants of King David and we are the descendants of the Maccabees and we have this kind of you know resourcefulness and, and strength in our genes, we were able to create a state. And then every time they attacked, we were there. We were able to defend ourselves and, and prevail and, and so on. It's everywhere. I mean, so then again, you know, every every family in my case, every every time the larger, the more extended family got together, or my parents got together with their friends. And of course, in many cases, the fathers were also, you know, comrades in arms. The stories of the battles, the stories of the conquests. Um, you know, every you know, every city in Israel has a an IDF plaza, street names after different units of different generals or all over the country you know, uh, street names of battles. So, I, I mean, I mean, it's everywhere. And then, it wasn't until I was probably 40, or maybe just less than, a little bit less than 40, that it was the first time that I was actually, that I actually encountered the other narrative, the Palestinian story, and it was unbelievable. It was, somebody was telling me that day is night, and night is day, or the world is flat, or whatever, you know, the comparison you want to make. It was incredible. They are telling me that what I know to be true, because I heard it in school and I read it in books and I heard it from my father and from my mother and from friends, that all of this is not true. And what you find out if you go along the path that I chose to take, this journey of an Israeli into Palestine, is that it was one horrifying crime against humanity. That's what this heroism, the so-called heroism really was. It was no heroism at all. It was a well-trained, highly motivated, well-indoctrinated, well-armed uh, militia, which then became the IDF. But when it started, it was still a militia, or at today they would be called <clears throat> a terrorist organization. That went up against the people who had never had a military force, who never had a tank, who never had a warplane, who never even prepared, you know, even remotely for, for battle or for this kind of, uh, for this, this sort of an assault and then you have to make a choice i mean how do you how you know how do you bridge this the, you know the the differences are not nuanced the differences are you know are, are enormous um but and again like i said the choice that i made is to investigate for myself and find out uh who's telling the truth and who isn't and of course my side was not telling the truth
0: how did they explain uh incidents such as the nakba the uh, massacres that took place in forty eight and fifty six, uh, the massive ethnic cleansing that took place in sixty seven. How was that explained uh, to you w- within that mythic narrative? And then I wonder if you could, because many of the activities, as, as you mentioned, that the IDF has had to carry out are are quite brutal, quite savage. The killing, indiscriminate killing of civilians. We can talk about Gaza in a minute. And, I, and so what did that do to the society, the people who carried out those killings and, of course, eventually huge prisons and torture and everything else? But let's begin with how the myth coped with those incidents and then talk about the trauma that, that is carried within Israeli society for carrying out those war crimes.
1: So you know, my generation, we knew that there were several instances of uh, bad apples that committed terrible crimes, and we admitted. So there was Deir Yassin, which was a village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, a peaceful village. You know, where a horrible massacre took place. And then we knew that Ariel Sharon was a was a was a bit of a lunatic, and he took his, the commandos that he that he commanded in the fifties and went to the West Bank and went into Gaza and committed acts of you know terrible massacres he was still a hero by everybody you know held by you know held in high regard by everyone but we knew that there were certain instances and you know every military every nation has its makes its mistakes and then these things happen but there was never any sense that this somehow discounted or hurt the image of us being a moral army and and there are lots of stories of how you know, soldiers went, and they decided to, out of the kindness of their heart, they were, they didn't harm civilians. And those same civilians went, and then uh, warned the enemy that they were coming. And these same soldiers, good Israeli soldiers, were then you know paid the price and were killed. So it 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 doesn't you know it's 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 presented as limited cases. Nakba was not something that was ever discussed. I'm sure it's not discussed today. Certainly not in schools. Um. And um, in fact, in Israeli schools, today they're not allowed to mention the Nakba. There's a direct. There's a directive by the Ministry of Education that even Palestinians are not allowed to to mention the Nakba. Um, but nobody ever talked about that, and the Arabs left. Well, what are you going to do? There was a war, and all these people left. And this is the way it is. So we none of that ever, you know, ever uh, hurt in any way the image of us being this glorious, heroic army again, descendants of King David and other great you know, traditions of of Jewish heroism. None of that ever ever hurted it itself. So there's no trauma because we did nothing wrong. And if somebody did something wrong, well, it was, it was, it was a, you know, it was a, a case of bad apples. It was limited to a particular circumstance, a particular person, a particular unit, and you get crazy people everywhere. What are you gonna do? It's never been presented. It's never presented as systemic. And today, of course, we have a history so we can look back. And if we do pay attention and if we do read the literature and we do listen to Palestinians and today, um, you know, there's this great NGO called Zuhrot, which which actually is, is its mission is to maintain the memory of the towns and cities that were destroyed in 1948 and to revive the stories of actually what took place in 1948. And they are uncovering new, new massacres all the time because as that generation is dying off, both the. The Israelis who committed the crimes and the Palestinians who were still alive at the time and survived are opening up and telling more and more stories. So we know of, of churches that were filled with civilians and were burnt down. We know of a mosque in Lid that was filled with uh, people and uh, and a young man went and shot him a Fiat missile into it. I mean, so all of these horrific stories are are, are still coming out but israelis are not paying attention you know israelis are not listening and then you have uh, whenever there's an attack on gaza and as you know very well these attacks began in the 50s with ariel sharon by the way um it was always there was always a reason because first they were infiltrators and then they were terrorists and now they're called hamas and whatever the devil's name may be there's always a very good reason to go in there because basically you know these are people who are growing you know who are raised to hate and kill and so on so it's it's a very well it's a very tightly knit and tightly um, orchestrated narrative that, that that is being perpetuated, um, and Israelis don't seem to have a problem with that.
0: And yet, carrying out acts of brutality, uh, the you know the occupation. We have huge numbers. I think a, a million Israelis are in the states. Uh, I mean, large numbers of Israelis have left the country. I'm wondering how many of those are people who have a kind of conscience and are repulsed by what they have seen in the West Bank and Gaza? Or perhaps I'm incorrect about that.
1: I don't know. I mean, when I, when I the, the few encounters that I've had with Israelis in the U.S. over the years, the vast majority support Israel, support Israel's actions. Um, I, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I just got a, um, a letter, an email from someone who uh, is representing a group of alumni of Jewish Day Jewish Day? Uh, I think it's called Jewish Day schools. These are Zionist schools all over the countries where really they they indoctrinate the the worst kind of Zionism, of course, secular Zionism. Um, and they are now just appalled by as they look back the indoctrination to serve in the IDF and the a very high percentage of these students actually actually grew up and went to Israel and joined the IDF and. And uh, you know they were they were they were, were took part in AIPAC events and so on and now they're looking back and they're kind of reflecting and they are feeling a sense of anger that they were put through this and lied through their entire lives about this. So that's an interesting that's an interesting development and if that grows, then I think that might be a game changer because it's it, this is uh, these are these are the, the most loyal American Jews you know the, the most loyal to Israel. But by and large, Israelis that I meet, um, with few exceptions, support Israel, and they're here for whatever, other, whatever reasons people come to America. You know, they're not unique. They're not necessarily because they were fed up or they were angry or they, had, uh, or they were dissenters in any way, shape, or form. And I listen, you know, around D.C. and Maryland, there are many Israelis. You know, sometimes you'll sit in a coffee shop or go somewhere, you hear the conversations. You know, there's no, there's no lack of support for Israel among these Israelis, as far as I can see.
0: Let's talk about the armies. So you were in the special forces, elite unit. What uh, you know? Talk about that indoctrination. I, I remember visiting Auschwitz a few years ago, and there were Israeli groups and people were flying Israeli flags. Uh, but but speak about that form of indoctrination. Its link, in particular, to the Holocaust. Well the the
1: again the myth is that Israel is a response to the holocaust and that the IDF is a response to the holocaust we must be strong we must be willing to fight we must always you know have a gun in one hand a weapon in in one hand um so that this will never happen again and what's interesting is when you talk to holocaust survivors who are not indoctrinated who did not get pulled into Zionism which which which, which you know there there are very very many um they'll say the the notion that a militarized state is somehow the answer to the holocaust is absurd because the answer to the holocaust is tolerance and education and humanity not violence and racism um but you know that's again nobody wants to ruin a, a good story with the facts with a good myth with actual facts so that's the story the story is because of auschwitz we are now you know we are um we represent all those that, that, that were killed and the, the perished, you know, by the Nazis and so on. And therefore, we need to be strong. And the Israeli flag represents them and the Israeli military represents them. And of course, it's absurd. It's, it's absolute madness. I mean, I, you know, I, w- I went to serve in the army willingly, of course, as most young Israelis do. Um, in my environment, refusing or not going uh, w- was not heard of. Although there were some you know there were some voices you know in the wilderness that were refusing and and so on questioning the morality. but I never did, nobody around me ever did until I was actually I began the training and you began patrolling and you're being you' are you're you know I remember I think you and I may have talked about this once. I remember being given um you know we were an infantry unit uh, you know it's a commando infantry unit and suddenly we were given but given batons and these plastic handcuffs and we were told to patrol in Ramallah. And I'm going, what the hell's going on? What are we doing here? And then we're told if anybody looks at you funny, you, you break every bone in their body. And I thought, everybody's going to look at us. We're uh, commandos while marching through a city. Who's not going to look at us? I mean, what kind of a crazy. And I just, I was just behind. I didn't realize that everybody already understood that this is how it is. You know, this is how it's supposed to be. I thought, wait, this is wrong. Why are we doing this? We're supposed to be the good guys here. So and then, of course, the Lebanon invasion of of eighty two and so on. So that kind of broke that, in my mind, that was kind of the uh, a serious crack in the wall of belief and the wall of patriotism that that um, you know that was in me. But th- this whole notion that somehow being violent and militaristic and racist and being conquerors is somehow response to the to the horrors of the Holocaust. It is absolute madness. But again, when you're in it, nobody's asking the question, and nobody around you is asking questions. You don't ask questions either, unless you're willing to stand out and be and be smacked on the head. How
0: did within the military within the IDF? How did they speak about Palestinians and Arabs? The
1: the the discourse, the the hatred, the racism is 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 horrifying. I mean, first of all, you know. They're the animals, they're nothing. I mean, it's a joke, you know, you see, you see, you know, uh, it's just horrifying, you know, they they think it's funny to stop people and ask them for their ID and to chase them and to chase kids and to shoot. I mean, it all seems like entertainment, you know. Um, And that again, I never heard that kind of, excuse me, discourse until I was in it. And then afterwards, when I would meet Israelis who served, even here in the United States, you know, the way they joke around about what they did in the West Bank, the way they joke around about killing or or stopping people or making them, you know, take their clothes off and dance naked. It, it's entertainment. They, they think it's funny. They don't see that there's a problem here because the racism is so ingrained from such a young age that it's it's, it's just it's it's almost organic, you know. And I think I don't think it's surprising. I think when you have a racist society. And you have a racist education system that is so um, methodical. That's what you get. And the racism doesn't stop with with Palestinians, with Arabs. It goes on to the black people. It goes on to people of color. It goes to Jews or Israelis who come from other countries who are who are dark skinned for some reason. You know, I mean, the racism goes. You know, crosses all these boundaries, and it's uh, it's it's just completely part of it's completely part of the culture.
0: You have very little criticism of. The IDF, almost none within the Israeli press. Although there is quite a bit of criticism uh, right now of Netanyahu and his mismanagement and his corruption. And um, talk a little bit about the uh, th- the deification of the IDF within uh, the public discourse and mainstream media, and what that
1: means for what's happening in Gaza. Well, you know, the, the military is above the law. It's above reproach, except from time to time. So after the 73 war, there was, a, there was, a, there was an investigation. Um, and now uh, there has been, just earlier this week, there was a cab- in the cabinet meeting, the cabinet meets every Sunday, um, and the army chief of staff was there, and he was apparently, this was leaked from the, from the meeting, a cabinet meeting. It was leaked that some of the more right-wing partners. It's funny to say right-wing partners because there's all this right-wing, you know, lunacy in the Israeli cabinet. But the more right-wing settlers that are in the cabinet were attacking uh, the army. Were attacking the chief of staff because I guess he he decided to start an inquiry because there was a it was, a, it, was a, it was catastrophic when the Palestinian fighters came in from Gaza. There was nobody home. You know, they took over half of their country back. They took 22 Israeli settlements and cities. They took over the army base of the Gaza Brigade, which is supposed to defend the the country from exactly this happening, and there was nobody in the base. You know, they took over the base. So he began, I guess, or he he initiated an internal inquiry within the army, and they're criticizing him. And what you see in the Israeli press is two very interesting things. One is, yes, there was this, you know, this, something went horribly wrong and we need to find out why. But we should wait because we shouldn't do it during wartime. We shouldn't criticize the army during wartime. We shouldn't um, hold, make the soldiers feel like they have to hold back because if they need to shoot, they should be allowed to shoot. And the other thing we see is that the politically, everybody is eating each other up. I mean, they are killing each other politically in the press. Um, so of course, everybody that's against Netanyahu and wants a seat is attacking him. Uh, his people are attacking the others for attacking the government. I mean, there's just there's there's this complete. Um, it seems like there's this paralysis as a result of this infighting that is definitely affecting the 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 functionality of the state as a state. You know, Israelis are not living in the in the in the country. It, Israel is not the state that it was prior to October seventh you know it was paralyzed for several weeks and now it's still you know paralyzed in many ways you've got you know missiles coming from the north you've got missiles coming from the south you've got you know very large numbers of israeli soldiers being killed and thousands being injured and the war and it's not ending they're not able to defeat the palestinians in gaza but, you know the armed resistance and so on so all of this is taking place, and you read the Israeli press, and it's it's just like it's just like this cesspool that's bubbling and bubbling and bubbling, and everybody's attacking everybody else. And the army, like you said, it's true. They are above reproach mostly, but from time to time, like I said, th- this particular time, the settlers are very angry because also another reason is because I guess the chief of staff, just the military, decided to pull back some of the ground troops, understandably, since they're being hit so hard. Um, and I remember that happening before when the army, uh, pulled back out of Gaza, they were being attacked for stopping the killing for, for not continuing, you know, these mass killings of Palestinians.
0: Well, you had what, 70, uh, fatalities in the Golani brigade, I think, and they were pulled back. This is a very elite unit.
1: Yeah. It's very interesting because many of the casualties are, uh, you know, high ranking officers. You have colonels, lieutenant colonels. Very high-ranking commanders within Israeli special forces are being killed, and they're usually killed in big bunches. Like you say, in big bunches they're being because they're, they'll be in, a, in an armored personnel carrier, or, or they'll be, you know, marching together, or they'll, you know. Um, and in Jenin, just recently, also a few days ago, they uh, they blew up um, a military vehicle and killed a bunch of soldiers. So it's uh, it's um, Israelis are I think uh, scratching their heads, not knowing what the hell is going on and what to do, because number one they they were not protected as they thought they should as they thought they were, and I'm sure you know this you know the Israeli settlements the Kibbutzim the cities in the south that border Gaza and the Nakam, you know they enjoy some of the highest standards of living among Israelis you know it's a beautiful lifestyle it's warm it's lovely agriculture is is you know and I don't think it ever occurred to them that Palestinians would dare to come out of Gaza fighting and 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 succeeding the way they did, and that the army, I mean, the army was bankrupt. It was gone. The intelligence apparatus, bankrupt. Nothing worked. <clears throat> and it is reminiscent of what happened in 1973. I mean, this is far worse, but it is reminiscent, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence that October 7th attacks were exactly 50 years in one day after the 1973-October war began. And, you know, the whole system collapsed. So that's what we're seeing right now.
0: How do you read what's happening in Gaza militarily?
1: Well, clearly the Palestinians are able to hold, hold on and, and, and kill many Israelis. And, and, and even though the Israelis have the firepower and they've got the logistics, obviously they've got supply chains are not a problem. Whereas Palestinians, I don't know where they're getting supplies. I don't know where they're getting food even to, to continue fighting. They're obviously putting up a fierce resistance. Um, I don't think that militarily there's a strategy here. I mean, this is this is revenge. This is just you know, Israel was humiliated, the army was humiliated, and they needed to take it out on somebody. So they found the weakest the weakest victims they they could put, lay their hands on, and these are the Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and so they're killing them by the tens of thousands. Um, I don't think anybody believes in such a thing as getting rid of Hamas. I don't think anybody but really believes that that's possible. I don't believe anybody takes seriously or actually believes that you can take too many people out of Gaza and spread them around the world and into other places, even though that's what they're saying. But as long as Israel is allowed to kill and as long as the supply chain isn't, uh, isn't interrupted, they're going to continue to kill.
0: And they're also, of course, creating a humanitarian crisis. So it's not just the bombs and the shells. But it's now starvation, uh, uh, diarrhea is an epidemic, uh, sanitation is broken. Uh, I, I'm wondering at what point this humanitarian crisis becomes so pronounced that really the choice is you leave or you
1: die. That's always the big question for Palestinians, and the sad thing is that Palestinians are always being placed in this in these situations where they have to make that choice, and it's you know it's it's the worst form of injustice um and and you know this you've been in war zones i mean we don't know how many bodies are buried under the rubble and what that's gonna what that's going to bring up and there are hundreds of thousands now like you said that are suffering from all kinds of diseases as a result of this uh you know environmental catastrophe and you remember what was it 2016 or something 2017 the un came out with a report that by 2020 gaza would be uninhabitable You know, I don't think the Gaza Strip has ever been inhabitable. It's been a a humanitarian disaster since it was created in the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, because they suddenly threw all these refugees there with no infrastructure, and that was it, and then began killing them. So, you know, it's a question of, it's a question, and, and, you know, I was talking to some people the other day, you know, as, as Americans, as taxpayers, you know, wouldn't we want the Sixth Fleet, which is in the Mediterranean, the U.S. Navy Sixth Fleet, to aid the Palestinians, to provide them support, to create a no-fly zone over these innocent people that are being massacred? I mean, as Americans, isn't that the natural, shouldn't that be the natural ask, the natural desire to demand our politicians to use? Because, you know, American naval vessels have been used for humanitarian uh, uh, causes before. Why aren't they supporting the Palestinians? Why aren't they providing them aid? Why aren't they helping them rebuild? Why is our American tax dollars going? To continue the these these this genocide rather than stop it and aid the victims, I think this is a question Americans need to ask themselves because it makes absolutely no sense. It is absolute madness that it, that that people are allowing their government to support a genocide that's not even done in secret. It's not even done in hiding. It's like it's it's on prime time. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows what's going on. And again, for some strange reason, Americans are allowing their military and their government to aid the genocide. And there's no question, I mean, there's no question that it's genocide. I mean, the definition of the crime of genocide is so absolutely clear. Anybody can look it up and compare it to what's been going on in Palestine. So that, to me, is really the greatest question. Why aren't Americans demanding that that the U.S. support the Palestinians?
0: Well, according to opinion polls, most Americans want a ceasefire. But the Congress is bought and paid for by the Israel lobby. Biden is one of the largest recipients of aid or campaign financing from the Israel lobby. Uh, And, uh, you know, and this is true within both parties. I mean, Chuck Schumer was at the
1: rally saying no ceasefire. Which is odd. I mean, a ceasefire, I mean, I think ceasefire is a very small ask. And I don't know why Palestinians, we always ask for the bare minimum for Palestinians. but. Let's talk about ceasefire. I mean, Israeli soldiers are being killed as well, in very large numbers. How has ceasefire suddenly become an anti-Israeli demand? But I think that it's a very small ask. I don't know how it, it was or where it was that the you, know, the, 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 this idea of demanding just a ceasefire came up, because that is really not a serious demand ceasefire gets violated by Israel anyway within 24 48 hours I mean you know that you know historically Israel always violated ceasefires what's the what what is required here are severe sanctions a no-fly zone immediate aid to the Palestinians and stopping this and providing guarantees so for the safety and security of Palestinians forever moving forward so this can never happen again that's what really needs to be the ask you know the at this point, after having sacrificed so much, after having shown such, what I believe is immense courage, Palestinians deserve everything. They, we need, we as people of conscience, need to demand, not a ceasefire, we need to demand a dismantling of the apartheid state and a full stop and end, absolute end to the genocide and guarantees put in place that Palestinian kids will be safe. I mean, I was talking to Issa Amra earlier in Hebron. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, nobody even talks about what happens in the West Bank. Friends of mine who are Palestinian citizens of Israel, nobody dares to leave the house. Nobody's nobody's dares to text. They're afraid to walk down the streets. Their safety is not guaranteed by anyone. Palestinian safety and security is is left to the to the whims of, of of any Israeli. And that should be the conversation right now. After such horrendous violence, that needs to be the demand. That needs to be the ask. When we go to protests, when we make these demands, ceasefire. And even that is, you know, Israel is not willing, and and like you said, these political supporters of Israel here in America are not willing to entertain a ceasefire. I believe it's 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 really a crazy, a crazy, a crazy part of history that we're experiencing right now. And I think it's a watershed moment. I think October seventh created an opportunity to end this for good, to end the suffering of Palestinians, the oppression, and the genocide for good. And if we don't take advantages, again, we being people of conscience, if we don't take advantage of this now and bring it to an end, this will be, an, uh, we will be, we'll regret this for generations.
0: The Netanyahu government is talking about this assault on Gaza, this genocide continuing for months. Uh, there are strikes; there have been strikes against now Hezbollah leaders uh uh, what what concerns you i mean how could this all go terribly wrong
1: i mean it's already gone terribly wrong i mean the death and destruction of so many innocent lives is 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 uh, i don't even know that there's a word for it i mean it's 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 beyond horrifying i think that i think uh netanyahu is relying on the restraints of hezbollah and the restraint of iran and the restraint of course you know the Arab governments have all been neutralized either through destruct- being destroyed or through normalization. So he's relying on that, and he knows that he can keep triggering. He can keep you know bombing Lebanon, bombing Syria, uh, instigating all of these things, and and they it won't turn into an all-out war because at the end of the day, even though the Hezbollah fighters have shown the Lebanese fighters and Hezbollah and the Palestinian fighters have shown that they're superior as fighters. They don't have the supply chains. They don't have the warplanes. They don't have the tanks. So more and more civilians are going to be hurt. So I don't think it's going to turn into a regional war by any stretch of the imagination. And so Netanyahu is betting on that. And that's why he's allowing this to, you know, to go on. And for him, this is a win-win. I mean, there's no way that he can be, be unseated by anybody that's around him. There's really no opposition. Uh, and as long as this goes on, as long as this, everybody's in a state of crisis, he can he can continue to sit in the prime minister's seat, which for him is you know is the end all and be all of everything. And look, the world is supporting uh, the world as world uh, governments of the world, I should say. You know, I do interviews with African uh, African TV stations, Indian TV stations, Europeans. Everybody, everybody's supporting Israel. Everybody, you know, listens to what I have to say and they think I'm you know I'm, I'm a lunatic for supporting terrorism or whatever it is they, however it is that they frame it. But um, I don't think anything good—I don't see this ending unless there is massive pressure by people of conscience on their governments to force change, to force sanctions, to force the end of the genocide and the end of the apartheid state.
0: I want to talk about the shift within Zionism itself from the dominance of a secular leadership to—we see it, of course, in the government of Netanyahu the rise of a re- religious zionism which is also true now within the IDF and and I wondered if you could talk about the consequences
1: of of that sure so you know originally traditionally historically zionism and judaism were at odds the and even to this day as you know ultra orthodox jews uh, reject zionism and reject israel by and large but after 1967 there was this new creation of the Zionist religious movement. And these are the settlers who went to the West Bank and they became the new pioneers. And they are, today, they make up a large portion of the the officers and those who join the special forces and so on. And in the past, in the army, the unofficial policy was that these guys should not be, you know, they they should not be allowed to advance. You know the current chief of staff comes from that world, which is a which is a huge change. And there are several generals, and of course commanders, and, you know, high-ranking commanders, and so on, who come from that world. And uh, and the reason that it was the un, you know unofficial policy was oh, that these guys should not be promoted, was that you know it's it's a, it's an incredibly toxic combination. This messianic uh, form of Judaism, which is which is really an aberration. It's not Judaism at all. With this, with this, uh, with this nationalist, you know, fanaticism, this combination is toxic. And look what it created. It created some of the worst racist, some of the most violent thugs, you know, that, that we've seen certainly in the in the short history of the state of Israel. Although I don't know that they're any less violent than the generation of Zionists of my father who are who are secular. But this is this is a this is this was a big concern in the past. But now they're everywhere. And of course, look at the, the current government. They hold the finance ministry. They hold the national security ministry. Um, they're certainly in the military. They call they're, they're everywhere, and they hold many sub cabinet and 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 their heads of committees in the Knesset and so on. And they've done their work. I mean, they worked very hard to get to where they are today, which is where they you know they call the shots. And they are really Netanyahu's uh, guarantee to remain in power. They're you know they're his support group. That's why you could have had. As we had earlier this year, hundreds of thousands of Israeli protesting in the streets, and it didn't affect him because he has his block in the Knesset that will never uh, will never leave him as long as he as long as he plays their, allows him to play their game. And this is what, this is this is what's happening. So in terms of violence and the and the actual facts on the ground, I don't think these guys are any worse again than my, my parents' generation, who were young Zionists and and zealots at the time and committed the 1948 uh, Nakba. And ran the country for the first, and you know, the and, and operated the apartheid state for the first few decades. But it's definitely a new form of of fanaticism, being that it is religious as well as as uh, as as fascist. So it's very, you know, it's 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 a it's it's very toxic. And I think they have a stomach, more of a stomach for killing civilians than we've ever seen before, even for Israelis. I mean this is a new, this is this is these numbers are just uh, beyond these are numbers are beyond belief even for Israel.
0: I'm wondering if this religious Zionism probably has its profoundest effect within Israel in terms of shutting down dissidents, civil
1: liberties, this kind of stuff. Well Israelis love them. Israelis love these guys because they're religious, but they dress like us. They don't look like the, you know, the old you know, the old Jews with the big beards and everything. They're kind of cool, they wear jeans. And, and the reason I, I say this is because one of the things, one of their objectives is to take over Al-Aqsa and build a Jewish temple or destroy Al-Aqsa. And, and and so they conduct these tours. And you may know this, when you in the old city of Jerusalem, there's a particular path that you take from where the Western Wall is up to Al-Aqsa, which is open for non-Muslims. And so they hold tours, and there's several times throughout the day. And I've taken some of these tours just to see what it's about, what these guys do, you know. Uh, these are basically prayer tours, and they've taken hundreds of thousands of Israelis who go on these tours. And these are Israelis who are not religious at all; these are secular people. I mean, I see the people on the on the that go on the tours, and you go up that bridge, just to give you an idea of of what this is about. You go up on that bridge, and then you wait until the time start the tour starts because you have to go in a group. And there's a massive model of the new temple. Of the Jewish temple that is going to be built there, and then you have um, you know this huge you know a huge uh, you know group of, of armed police. They're not soldiers or police, but dressed like you know completely militarized that accompany the tour all around. Of course, Muslim Palestinians are not allowed. They accompany the tour all around, and they stop and they pray, and they stop and they pray, and they stop to pray at various places. The whole thing takes maybe an hour. Um, But the interesting thing is that the people that go on these tours are secular Israelis. And then as I was doing this, I was remembering, uh, even as a kid growing up completely secular, we would sing songs about the day that we build a temple. Hmm. Why did we sing songs about building the temple? Because I think it went beyond a religious significance and it became a national significance. And there's no question in my mind that Netanyahu and secular Israelis are, you know, would love to see this idea of destroying Alexa and having a Jewish temple there. You know, it's a sign that we're back. You know, King David is back. And the connection, even though it has nothing to do with history and there's no truth in it, the connection that we are descendants of King David, you know, is something Israelis really love. That's really what, you know, what this is about. So the, the, the relationship between the settlers the so-called settlers. That's what they're called in Israeli jargon. They're called the settlers. And um, regular secular Israelis is, is an interesting one, because on the one hand, they're looked down upon because they're religious, but on the other hand, they're kind of cool religious. So there is an affinity.
0: Great. That was Miko Pellet, author of The General's Son*, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land, Foundation 5. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granandino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at (music) chrishedges.substack.com.